And it's important to surround yourself with people who believe in you and having that support system, whether it's friends or family, because when you start surrounding yourself with people like that, it makes it a little bit easier and feeling like that there's someone behind you that not necessarily will catch you, but will be there to listen to you about what you're going through, at least just have someone to talk to. So always, always believe in yourself because if you don't believe in yourself, how are you going to convince other people to believe in you? The C-Suite is a podcast about sharing entrepreneurship stories and illuminating financial concepts in a way that speaks to who we are as creatives, as small business owners, as entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs, not as finance executives. Each episode features one finance term that is explained through career stories in conversation with friends. So join me as we dive into the highly personal stories that bring finance to life. Because you can do this. You can learn to understand it intuitively. And when we do that and put new ideas into context, that's when we can learn, plan, and thrive. Welcome to the C-Suite with Catherine. Today's featured finance term is profit and loss statement. And I'm thrilled to welcome Andrew Kwan, founder and designer of Andrew Kwan, a couture, bridal, and evening wear brand based in New York City. Andrew Kwan's gowns are available directly through his showroom and at Bergdorf Goodman, the window to the world of luxury retail. And he and his collections have been featured in Forbes and the New York Times. His design aesthetic empowers women highlighting the strength and beauty of nature. Each collection takes cues from Kwan's surroundings and builds upon this concept with femininity, bridging the ethereal with the everyday. Andrew, welcome. Wow, I love that intro. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. It's truly my pleasure. We share a very special few things in common. Uh, The first is that we're very involved with the Luxury Education Foundation, which is how we met. And it is a nonprofit dedicated to encouraging the next generation of leaders within the luxury space through educational programs with Parsons and Columbia Business School. And we are also both Parsons alums. Mm -hmm. And that is where you launched your line in 2020, or soon after graduation, rather, I should say. Yes, we are both a part of LEF, which, you know, I think is such an incredible place to be together. And now that we're, you know, both Parsons alumni, I mean, it's like fate. (laughs) Truly. The fashion design program at Parsons is pretty iconic, and your thesis for your graduation got a lot of attention. Can you tell me a bit about that collection? So that collection was called the Underwater Garden Collection, and that collection was really a place of me being not inspired. I wouldn't say inspired is a word, but trying to create beauty out of somewhere where it was a little bit dark in my life, where... You know, I actually first started in architecture and interior design at Parsons, and then I moved into fashion. And I didn't choose something where I went the whole route of sustainability or how I was going to save the world by using recycled fabrics. And I think I wanted to really dig deep emotionally. And that's how I work best with designing is through my memories and things that matter a lot to me in the ways of like things that really made an imprint in my mind and my heart. And so I created this collection called the Underwater Garden Collection. It was a collection of evening wear. So 
I left evening wear, I left the red carpet. Um, so when I created this collection, I created a narrative where someone was going through almost a journey through the ocean. And that's why you'll see what the collections, it starts with darkest navies and the darkest blues. And when you slowly look through the collection, it goes from dark navies to a little bit more of this sage green, where I was thinking of algae and kelp and the, what you would see in the water. And then you would go up to these nudes and pinks from like the beach sands and the shells that you would see. And it would eventually turn into this white jumpsuit. And it, that was basically saying you looked up at the clouds and in the collection, you see a lot of these floral elements. You know, I think some people saw the collection as, oh, just really pretty dresses with um, all these florals. But they, when they started asking about the collection name and I explained it, everyone just thought, oh my gosh, that is a lot deeper and almost dark, but beautiful. And I knew some people probably thought, well, if you're making a collection for women, don't you think women would want to wear dresses that are just all about the frou-frou and the fluffiness and beauty and etherealness? But I think, you know, being able to tell that dark side of the story and how to come out of a dark time like that and create it into a beautiful moment, into, you know, some beautiful lesson learned in life, um, that was really important to me. And I think some people felt it and saw it. And that's why it resonated with so many people. I mean, that is what defines luxury fashion. It is not just a pretty dress. There is a story embedded into every seam and embroidery and embellishment in this part of our industry. And um, I, I think that's so powerful and special. And all I can think of, frankly, is someone who came before you in the world of evening wear and bridal, Alexander McQueen, who's also known for having that duality in a lot of the collections that he designed and that Sarah Burton continues. So I'm not remotely surprised that you are already a total star and completely on the rise. And a dress from that collection landed in what window? So the, that sage tool gown, um, that's, you know, that silhouette has become such a signature in my collections. Yeah. That sage tool gown got pulled um, for the Neiman Marcus Hudson Yards exhibition. And that is a gown that shortly after got pulled for the Nylon 2019 September cover story with Natalie Emanuel. Uh, right after, you know, she's from Game of Thrones and she played Missande. And that's what she wore, paired with some Chanel top by the stylist named Jahuli. Um, and shot by Savannah Rudy, who I actually coincidentally ended up working with recently again. Um, but yes, it was that tool gown for Neiman Marcus, and it was in the front class display. And I think around four to six students got that class display. So it meant a lot to me. Shortly after it got pulled for nylon, then it got pulled from another stylist named Raytel Bridges for Miss Universe 2018's last photo shoot with the Miss Universe organization. Wow. Um, Catriona Gray, she, she's Miss Philippines. And it's crazy because I used to watch her on YouTube all the time with her runways and her competitions. So, you know, I'm a huge believer in fate and that things happen just by chance sometimes. But I do believe that stars align in a lot of moments. So that was a pretty incredible moment for me to see how far that dress came from just being a piece in my thesis collection to really, you know, going outside of school. That's amazing. I'm sure it gave you lots of confidence and encouragement as you started the label. So 
As I mentioned, The C-Suite is a podcast about sharing entrepreneurship stories and illuminating financial concepts in a way that speaks to who we are as creatives, not as finance executives. (laughs) (laughs) Today's podcast term is P&L, Profit and Loss Statement, which is a key financial statement in business that focuses on income and expenses. Expenses we know are key to growth. We understand what income is, right? That's your sales and the different ways in which your business generates revenue. Um, But expenses are key, and choosing the right ones as a young business is so important, not only to plan for profitability, but to make sure that you're investing in the business for growth from a growth perspective in terms of marketing, developing new collections, and telling your story so that you can inspire and connect with potential customers. Tell me, how is the brand growing? How do you connect with your potential clients and maybe what you are focusing on lately as it relates to introducing clients to the brand? Well, you know, when I, f- my, I said that my thesis collection was evening wear and there was that one jumpsuit that was white that almost touched upon bridal because I knew I wanted to do bridal one day. I knew that social media has always been huge in fashion, but I had a feeling it was going to be really crucial to me growing my business, especially something like Instagram. What I did with my Instagram was, that was my personal Instagram. And when Thesis came along, I got rid of all my personal posts of just wacky this and being goofy. And I started posting all my Thesis work. And that transitioned into carrying on into my business, my, you know, my brand now, which is my namesake brand, just Andrew Kwan. When I first launched though, I wasn't sure how to really get these clients or who were going to be these clients. But what I knew I could really do is tell my brand's story and who I am as a person through Instagram, but in a very elegant, modern way where it's not just a a castle in the back with beautiful models running around. But I think there was really a real way to show some of my very close friends just wear some of the dresses inside of my atelier slash apartment slash studio space or going to the rooftop to where I live and just having a really intimate moment with each other and showing the dress in action. And I think that resonated with other women that were following me or friends of friends who would repost on stories And I never really paid for PR and showrooms and things like that. Really, I tried to capitalize my most on Instagram. Probably the most organically, I would say, is just I started posting every other day, but then now it's really become to every single day and really using those right hashtags. You don't want to just randomly tag other people though that don't I mean you can't be tagging random magazines to see if that's going to work because that's not going to be a good look and you really need to look professional you don't want to look desperate for that type of attention that you're really needing it or wanting it I think it's just it has to come naturally has to come from a genuine place so I think being genuine and being truthful through social media and explaining the process of the dresses from my own voice because I still do all my social media myself So I think it's important with just being authentic. Sometimes it doesn't hurt to be a little fluffy with words and uh, the dresses and relating the dress to the words with what they're listening to, especially with music. So I think there was something about 
especially my Instagram, that really connected women to seeing the brand and really feeling like there's something more than just a pretty dress. You have to make people dream, I think. And especially if you know your your target client is purchasing something for a really special event in their life or their wedding or the mother of the bride or they're going to a, a gala that perhaps they were helping to raise money for. They want to feel like they're putting on the confidence that comes from the way in which you relate to your designs, I think. So um, tell me a little bit more about your decision to add two business lines, right? So you've got, you started with evening wear and more recently launched bridal. So that from a PL perspective, you've got like two categories of, of product, two business lines within your overall collection. So evening wear, and then if you could speak to bridal. So evening wear was that this collection, but just like a lot of people, we all went through COVID and the pandemic and are still going through it. But I, you know, really put my brand together all throughout COVID. And when I established it in 2020 and I officially launched it in 2021, during that time of about a year and a half of planning and doing the business plan, I knew that no women were be going to events. They weren't doing red carpets. And although evening wear and red carpet was one of my biggest dreams, what made sense to me was that women were still going to get married, even in small, intimate settings. Women were still planning for their weddings. And I knew that we were going to come out of the pandemic. It's just like I sort of work off of intuitions or hunches or just like the magical parts of the world that I believe in. In a business perspective and a mindset is when you're selling gowns that are priced not bridal, when you're selling evening wear gowns that are priced from, let's say, four to $12,000, you're selling to what? 2% of the world. But I knew that the one time that women were open to spending that type of money on a dress was their walk down the aisle. And I also understood from a business model that collections in bridal, I wanted to always be timeless and it wouldn't just be, oh, that's last season, no more. I wanted that to really be timeless and, you know, ha- let women shop prior collections um, as long as I always have my brand going. Um, and the first wedding I ever went to was my mom's. And my mom got remarried to my stepdad, who I love and adore so much. And he, you know, I saw the emotions on my mom's face walking down the aisle and I saw her cry. And there's something about, that moment that I think really captured my heart, it almost felt like it was a restart to her life and a new moment. And I wanted to create that same type of emotion for other women out there. So I decided to go into bridal and, you know, I launched last year and this is even before bridal fashion week or anything that I didn't know that much about, but I launched through Instagram and that's how bridal happened. But now, you know, now I officially launched my evening wear collection, you know, under my own name outside of school. So that just happened in September. It was beautiful. I was there. <laughs> Thank you for the invitation. You know, something I learned when I was in business school was about this concept of like willingness to pay. And it's a, a psychological approach where you're presented with something and you are willing to pay X for it. And if the price is there or below, you're thrilled. You feel like you, you made out really well in the exchange with bridal. And I was a bridal editor and I'm also a, re- I'm a newlywed. So is this is something I've thought about for ages. 
with bridal, it's such a special moment, like you're saying, where you are not approaching this from a very rational place. Like you might buy something else, like a different gown for a different event. This is not about that. It's about connecting with a garment. It's about celebrating. It's about that new start in life. So thank you for explaining that. I would love to talk about how you went from marketing the label on Instagram to being able to invest in things like presentations. And, you know, from back to our finance term, the other part of a PL is where you use funds to grow the business as expenses. And so marketing is a huge part of that. Tell me a little bit about your most recent presentation or perhaps your first presentation post pandemic. When I launched my brand and those collections, we really just focused on social media. Everything was digital. All the presentations were digital presentations on something like the CFTA Runway 360 is what they launched during the pandemic, I believe. And I wasn't ready to do an in-person presentation, nor would I during that time, because things were just absolutely insane with COVID. and Especially here in New York. Were you here? I was York? here, yeah. yeah, the whole time. So you remember the the ships and the 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 whole thing, the, yeah, it all was, of it. It was crazy, and me walking over to I don't know a grocery store and being afraid that I would get really sick by touching a door handle. Yeah, the last thing you're going to do <laughs> is send out PR invites right. <laughs> like, yes, come and celebrate this. Yeah, no, it was not the moment. But it was also, you know, it's a huge expense to do a presentation, and I have always and still very careful about where funds are going. And first, I didn't want to go into a presentation, spend that type of money when I wasn't sure who would be coming. All my friends could come, but it's as much as I love all my friends. It's not about that. It's a lot more than that. And you know exactly what I mean by this because you need the editors there. You need buyers there. You need stylists there. You need extra photographers from something like BFA, Getty, and these all cost money. So if it's just a bunch of friends that BFA or Getty are shooting and they don't know if they're not in fashion or any of these things where their name is going to pop up SEOs and all these types of things, what are you spending that money for? So when I finally started building more of that following and people started... No, getting to know my name and know the brand. And I started getting reposted on Instagram and getting different features and magazines and publishers. I knew that I wanted to do my first presentation as an almost wow, but intimate in a way too. And I did my first presentation, not with bridal. I did my first presentation at New York Fashion Week with evening wear. And I think what made me go to that decision was I as much as a digital presentation is financially friendly in some ways, I think the return on it sometimes, unless you already have such a big staple name that all you do is post a photo and it gets 60,000, 200, 300,000 likes. If you're a startup brand, I think to me, what made the most sense was to really create an intimate, elegant moment with inviting all the you know fortunate people that I was able to meet since launching that have big names in the industry already and making that investment to do that whole presentation, which was at the Baccarat. Thank you, Baccarat team. (laughs) (laughs) I kept thinking, what is the return on this going to be? And 
That's why I finally brought on a PR team that also costs a good amount of money. And I started to create a little bit of last minute customs to some girls that are I'm very close custom with. Custom pieces. Custom pieces mm-hmm. to wear to the show. Those were also, you know, investments to do as well on top of the collection, the brand new 18 piece collection, actually. Right. The collection itself already costs a lot. And you could rather do a photo shoot for the lookbook on a different day, but to be a little bit, quote unquote, like financially friendly, we did the lookbook shoot with video that morning. So my presentation started at 12 p.m. And then we shot the lookbook. I want to say starting at, we started doing hair and makeup probably at 8.30 or 8 a.m. I thought you were going to say 5. Yeah. Oh, no, we woke up at, <laughs> we probably woke up at 5, got prepared, got there at, I think, 7.30. Mm-hmm. And then all models, everyone probably started getting that at 8. We started hair and makeup. So we shot 18 looks and videos and photos in essentially less than three hours before the shoot. Because it would save you that money to have all the team there that day. Hair and makeup. And hair and makeup is not $200. I mean... You know, this is my favorite hack. (laughs) This is my favorite fashion industry hack. You shoot your lookbook on the same day you're doing a presentation. And as crazy and chaotic as it could be to do that, the amount of money... And logistics that it saves to just if you did it on a different days. No, forget it. I, I often encourage people to think about photography as like cost per image. So you've got the fixed costs of t- models. Yeah. Anybody that's coming talent wise. So hair, makeup, anybody on like set design, catering. Okay. Mm-hmm. So all those costs are fixed for the day. You're going to get all the lookbook images, behind the scenes content, then all your BFA and Getty presentation images. Yeah. So if you think about the number of images you were able to extract from the investment of that day, mm-hmm. and you divide the number of images by the total you spent on the day, you can look at like a health metric of your cost <laughs> per image. <laughs> and so, you know, if, if you had the same, you know, say if you did, you did two days at the Baccarat, it's like twice the expense for the same amount of photography. That's why if you can hustle it, and really put together a good team, even if it's just interns or volunteers or a friend of a friend who's not busy that day. Having them run around with the dresses too while you're also running around, it it'll save a lot. Cause you're not you don't want at least me, I I don't think I want to spend on two different days, at least right now. Yeah, not right now. And yeah. it's is your responsibility, you know, as the head of the business to be responsible to the extent that is possible yeah. um, with your expenses. I'd love to hear about dressing women for the presentation, because what I think people don't necessarily realize is that all the press images we see are a very carefully planned and orchestrated effort. You know, you mentioned BFA and Getty. If you don't hire the right photo service, your images will never end up on Vogue.com because that's just not how the system works. There are partnerships in place to license images. And if you're not having your photography shot by the right person, getting press coverage is that much harder. Dressing uh, some of the women. I mean, one specific person that I'm very good friends with and um, has been a good supporter of mine, um, Arden Cho. So she was... The lead feature star on a show called Partner Track on Netflix recently. And she was uh, most probably well known on YouTube for a lot of Asian Americans. And uh, she was on Teen Wolf and she played Kira. Yes. Um, you know, when Arden was, 
a little bit of the, oh my God, she called and we found out that she was going to be coming to New York. And she goes, I'm going to come a little you know, earlier so we can work on something together. But, you know, I would say a lot of these were organic in a way that it happened, but it also happened with me just really texting my friends that are sort of people sort of like Arden, including uh, my very good friend, Lauren R. Allred, who sang Never Enough in The Greatest Showman. And so everyone remembers that movie with Rebecca Ferguson singing, but it's actually Lauren singing that song for her. Lauren was there and as much as a PR team can do sometimes, some of the best people that'll show up for you are the ones that you have personal close relationships with. And it's about texting them and keeping in contact. But what some people have to also understand with dressing women and people for these types of events are, it is essentially also a business for them. And these types of celebrities, actresses, singers, influencers are being paid to show up to these So if you actually have those types of really incredible close friends that can show up when you need them, then, you know, it's really special and useful isn't the right word. It's just really being able to garner and like build that true, genuine relationship and not, you know, not expect them to do anything because they don't need to do it if they don't want to. But really having that type of real, true friendship is going to mean a lot. And your client's going to see it as well. I mean, that type of genuine relationship is very easy to discern, I mm-hmm. think. And when you're selling to someone who's wearing your piece for such an, a special moment, again, it's all about who you are, who your friends are, and how you relate to women in your world. The C-Suite with Catherine is brought to you by Cashflow for Creatives, a financial literacy company dedicated to supporting the small business community through easy-to-understand finance templates, tools, and trainings designed to help you manage cash flow with ease so you can focus on growth and getting back to doing more of what you love. Our core offering is the consistent cash flow method for small business owners, a groundbreaking approach to understanding your small business finances. This method centers around three key parts. First, understanding the key numbers that matter in your business. Second, the expenses you need to plan for based on your strategy. And third, how to craft sales goals based in facts that you believe in, and most importantly, that you understand how to achieve. When we paint this picture together, we get a very clear sense of how much money your business may need and when to be successful. This program is perfect if you're thinking about funding for your business or if you're debating about what comes next and you want to understand how to envision the future with clarity. Plus, you'll gain access to our group mentorship and direct feedback from me. Cashflow for Creatives also offers our Simple Finance 101 small business courses. Short, snappy, powerful lessons that help transform the way you think about money in your small business and These quick but effective mini-courses have an immediate beneficial impact on your business day-to-day. Head to cashflow-method.com to find the next best step for you and your business. It's also linked below in the show notes. So what does a day look like for you? A day... Well, I always say my days are a little sporadic at times, 
But I'll always wake up at right at 7 a.m. Alarm? No alarm. Mm. No alarm. I'll just open my eyes. And sadly, I am the type of person that reaches for my phone first. And the first things I'll really check are my emails. Um, But I try not to do that sometimes (laughs) if I can, um, if I remember. But, you know, really start my day around, I want to say, Eight o'clock is when I'll really get into emails and review everything and make up all my daily to-dos. And then around 10 a.m. is when my associate comes in. And we'll really just work from then till, I want to say, six o'clock. But my day-to-day can really go from working on emails all day to doing research, reading the research that any of my interns or my associates have done, reaching out to stylists or me looking through Instagram for an hour and seeing what editors I could try reaching out to or what stylists I could try reaching out to. Um, Some days it could be that we'll have a fitting at 10 a.m. and then that'll go till sometimes 1 p.m. And then we could have another fitting probably at 3 p.m. That goes till 5. And another day is I'll have nonstop Zooms for something. Um, or I'll have desk sides set up with editors. Other days I'll be running around the studio when collections are being made and trying to see where the fabric is for something and seeing that it's delayed and we need it by tomorrow and how we're going to really mitigate that situation. Supply chain. <laughs> supply chain. <laughs> so, so that's another thing. If you thinking about supply chain and fabrics and materials, if you're able to have that type of financing where you're able to invest in those materials... If you don't need them right now, but you know, might need them in the coming months for rather a new look or a new client's order, and you don't need to really plan out the logistics of how am I going to get the fabric? If you know, if you have that extra cushion room to buy more fabrics and extra of it, that always works too. But these are just day to day things that we're dealing with, and you know, other days it could be I'm running around doing fun, cool things like this with people that I love, <laughs> or you know, it'll be a random email and a meeting with like recently the consulate general of Korea in New York that I'll just get an email from and I'm like, come over, like, let's see. The days get so random sometimes. And I would love that I could say I do this every single day till six, but the days as, you know, being a business owner, being an entrepreneur or whatever it is, gets, it gets, you know, you're wearing different hats every day. My stepdad is always saying one day you're going to wear a hat to be doing this. And then the next day you're doing this. And some days I'll be on QuickBooks for hours, just organizing through all the invoices. and Louder for people in the back. (laughs) Yes. Did you hear that? He just said QuickBooks. (laughs) QuickBooks and accounting and just so many different things um, every day. But I'm so fortunate, just like a lot of us are, to be able to do things that we love. And to be able to call it our job, which is more of our life and our livelihood that, you know, I keep saying very, very lucky to be in that position to do. Entrepreneurship, especially where you are now, like two years in, you know, it's hard. You've got crazy things that come up every day, but then you do get those special moments where you're hearing from the consulate general or you're getting, you know, a request from a stylist that you really admire. Uh, Two things you said I want to go back to, one about investing in fabric so that you have it on hand for fulfillment. But the first, I think it would be great if you could explain like the architecture of a dress. So how does it start? You've got your sketch and some inspiration through to the finished piece. 
how a the construction of a dress really pans out is for me i know all all designers work differently and you you know that some designers really go into draping which is essentially you get the fabric and you put it over the mannequin but i call it a dress form you put on the dress form and you cut and you pin and you see the shapes of things and then some people you know work in a way where i do a lot of sketching and in my sketches if i can't figure something out that's when i'll go into something like draping and just see but i love looking at fabrics first too and seeing what fabrics i really envision for the dress you have to know the nature of the fabric if it's stretch or non-stretch how wide the fabric is to see if it's going to hit and match the panels from what the pattern maker is going to create so essentially for the people that don't know when you're sketching a dress you're working with your studio and what they're taking from that dress is they work with the head of the studio who you know oversees all the sewing and everyone that works for under them and will bring in a pattern maker some people do a pattern making by digital um on the computer and some people will do it by hand so we do a little bit mix of both of hand patterning and digital patterns and once you get those patterns you'll create a muslin so there's a fabric called the muslin which is essentially the prototype for the dress or in my case since i do so many gowns sometimes muslins aren't the best so i'll find a much cheaper fabric that um you know trickled its way down somewhere and it cost just a few dollars um and i'll get those fabrics and that's what we'll do the prototypes out of cuz that's what could be the closest to what the final dress uh the nature of the dress really is going to shape out to be and after that we'll do a few fittings and you're fitting on the muslin yes we're fitting with the muslin on a fit model mm-hmm. uh god bless the fit models who stand there in heels nonetheless yes <laughs> um and this process can take from sketch to finish it can be months it could be 2 months of non-stop running around and really making sure that it's exactly what you envisioned So that is what a lot of that construction of the dress is but it's not just you go into the final fabric and boom. I think we've also learned a lot in school just with anything you're creating drafts for something. When you're writing an essay you're creating a draft, you're editing just like a dress, you're drawing it almost like an outline. And then you're going into the muslin and to fittings, making little critiques to the muslin and then you're going into the final. and then even with the final sometimes you have to see what it looks like and make little tweaks there as well so that is a lot of what goes into the construction of the dress but even after the construction of the dresses you go into marking and grading of these patterns which means you take the pattern and you grade it first so if you made it in a sample size 2 you're grading it from 0 to whatever sizes you want to make available and if i go up to size 24 so i'll go from 0 to 24 but it costs money for each size that you do so every single size you're doing it costs money it's not just 10 20 these are hundreds of dollars and it goes to thousands and from that you're marking it which grading just sets it to the sizes whereas marking is how you're going to be sustainable in making all the pieces that go into the dress if it's using the same fabric it'll go on that same panel in that same area and 
the grader and marking company will shape the way that the patterns are positioned onto the panels to save the most fabric. And that also costs money for each size that you're doing. And printing it out will cost money every single time as well. So there is so much cost that go into creating collections that I think some people don't know. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's a little bit of the construction of a gown. Thank you for such an educational answer because you're right. People don't know what goes into this. And one of the criticisms I think we hear oftentimes is that smaller labels, smaller brands don't yet offer extended sizes or they only offer plus sizes and don't have straight sizes. So that's the reality. You have to be able to invest in doing all of the sizing and doing it really well. Like I imagine you are paying very close attention to the way the gowns are being adjusted throughout the grading process so that the intent of your design is still present in the, in the you know, you've got a sample size too. You want the woman in a, in a 20, 22, 24 to look exactly right as well. And that's very far away from the original size that you developed. Well, it's important that you sort of, you really do see the marketing grading process out and you really choose someone that understands what your dresses are like, how it's constructed, what it's supposed to look like. And finding that right person, I mean, I use a very good marketing grading person. I, I really love Paul and Carrie and everyone at the team. Um, and they've seen my brand from start to finish with the thesis collection till now. And getting people that really understand your pieces, but really making sure that those pieces that are graded to a 20, 22, 24, like you said, look exactly like what you envisioned on the sample size two or four or six. Um, but, you know, I, I have yet to really put a size 24 in my lookbooks. And some people have asked, even when I've done trunk shit, they've asked, well, why are these dresses so small, even in a two or a six? Because the average size of a woman, I would say, in the US is sometimes like a 10, 12. And I think that is another budget, though, of creating these bigger sizes as a sample and having that into the lookbook where you're going to have to hire more models. And it's, it's, it's a lot of costs. And like I said, I am just starting out still. But when that time comes and I have that cushion room, oh no, for sure I'm going to do that. You're already there. I mean, <laughs> the fact that you're you are already planning your marketing and grading to be so inclusive is truly amazing. Can we go back and talk about investing in fabric so that you have it on hand? So that is actually a, related to a different finance term called your balance sheet. So a balance sheet at any point in time is a snapshot of a company's assets, liabilities, and equity. And so if you are investing available cash, which is an asset, into fabric, which is also an asset, that would sit on your balance sheet as fabric inventory. Now, if you can do that, you're able to fulfill more quickly. You're able to develop new ideas because you have fabric available and you can work on dresses in a, a tighter turnaround. So I'd love to hear about how you're able to utilize your fabric assets, <laughs> which are not expenses uh, when they are in that in that form. Well, you know, once once I choose the fabrics that I know I really want to work with, if it's a reoccurring fabric, like 
some of the silk charmeuses that we use or some of the silk crepe back satins that we use or tools, that I will make sure that we buy a huge, not a huge, but a bigger quantity of at once so that we're not going so back and forth with these vendors. Um, And then there's some of the much more intricate fabrics that take, it could take eight weeks to create and make at the mills in Europe. And with those types of fabrics, maybe at once it's you're ordering 10 yards of it, 15 yards of it. But you know, some of those fabrics, when they're costing anywhere from $70 to $140 a yard, it gets to be a lot. Adds up. It does really add up. And so I think it's really me. I try to make very, very smart decisions on what I am almost predicting I'm going to need. And it's about looking at the collection, seeing what the reaction is from people that rather attended the show or what the emails I'm getting are about the certain dresses. And then that's when I'll know I'm going to need this fabric within a few months. Um, and that's when I'll bring it in. But when you said balance sheet, I just <laughs> had true PTSD from QuickBooks. Talk when to you, me. When you click the balance sheet, you click balance sheet detail and you click like all time or something. And you know, you're looking at the whole, ca- all the categories of what is going into the business, what's going in, what's going out, where you're putting some of these assets or, you know, the cash that you're, expenses and whatnot. With something like the fabrics, you're putting it into something. And for me, I put it in work in progress inventory. Then from that, you if you're putting 20 yards of that inside there and you really want to be on top of it and you use five yards of it, you better make sure you're doing some type of journal entry or split that transaction and putting that five yards into finished inventory or finished prototypes inventory or actual um, sale inventory whether it's wholesale or it's direct to consumer. So and these only are, at that point does it become an expense. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> so it's it's nuts, you know, learning about all of this and being at Parsons in fashion design. Sadly, we aren't taught these types of things, just like a lot of other businesses too, I think. Unless you really go to business school, you're going to like CBS. You're going right. to anywhere just like <laughs> you. You're not learning about these nitty gritty little details of a fashion business, just like any business though. And this can really be put across the board in so many different industries. That's it. That's why we're here. Yeah. I mean, these are things that I also learned on the fly, like you running my first company. You just can't really internalize what a balance sheet is if you did not learn it in school until you have a real world scenario where you are in charge. This is, you know, your team, your investment, your output, and your career. Then it becomes really meaningful. And I hope through conversations like this, it becomes meaningful for others as well. The other thing too, another expense is importing and shipping. So if you are investing in fabric once and you're bringing it in from Europe, at least you're only paying the shipping and import duties once as opposed to multiple times. And you know, I've learned over the years that every fabric is different. Even if it is the same article, if it was made at a different time from the fabric that you bought six months ago, it can behave differently. Have you ever had that experience? Pricing and fabrics are changing all the time. Shipping costs are changing a lot since the pandemic. 
things have gotten more expensive. And if you're, like I said, if you're able to have that cushion room and order all those fabrics at once and just predict for future orders, that is such a good position to be in. But, you know, when you're doing things like the things I design, which are pretty much what you would call in today's term, like demi couture, Mm -hmm. and everything is made to order. So nothing is off the shelves, nothing is off the and rack. you're not sitting on inventory you're not, either. So that's why I think it's creating that balance of, you don't have much inventory of these samples, except maybe the sample that travels for trunk shows mm-hmm. and the samples that's in your showroom for clients you try or being pulled for a stylist. And if you're not having that whole inventory of hundreds of these dresses sitting around, then you're a little bit in a better position. I think sustainably too. It makes a little more um, sense to me as well. But, you know, there are those times where if you're going to need a fabric within a week, but the fabric you don't have on hand and you need to go to the vendor and ask them and they go, well, that fabric is all the way in Asia or Europe. And if you want it within less than a week, shipping is going to cost three to $400. And then you're paying for duties and everything on top of that. It, it's crazy. And it's not great for the environment to like throw it on a plane or whatever, um, so if it's able to come on something a little bit slower, it's it, it's a little bit more cost efficient and it's not as damaging as to the environment as something as like a super fast plane ride would be. And so it's all things to really think about, to be honest. Yeah. And it speaks to also your comment before about designing sort of these evergreen styles. You know, you go through that development process for a gown, you invest in the patterns, you invest in the marking and grading, and you personally make sure it's perfect. And when you are, you know, walking a red carpet or a bride or going to an incredible event, you really want to know that you are in something that is perfect. And that takes time. Yeah. And you can't, you can't (laughs) and don't need to iterate on that every single season. Right. Well, I just remembered your, you touched upon earlier and you asked about creating that custom for a bride. Because everything that I do is pretty much made to order, I'm able to have that flexibility to create semi-custom looks as well. Whether it's a lot of my business has been choosing some bodice from one dress that she loved to another bottom skirt of another gown and really mixing and matching and seeing how I can work with my studio to really make it a special different piece that's you know, almost custom to them. But it is custom, basically. But if you're doing a full, full-on custom... It takes months and months and months of speaking, really building that relationship so you understand what the client wants. And it obviously costs a lot more because it's you're working directly with the designer. It's a well, lot you're, of you're sketching. making those technical changes. Yeah. It's not just you're not just selling access to you, Andrew Kwan. You are making something for them that goes through the entire development process yeah. of any gown in your collection. Exactly. And I think, you know, with starting out though. My stepdad, who's a huge advisor and just my parts of the business that he's not in fashion, but he goes, are you calculating the time that you're putting into these dresses or that you spend with the women to create these dresses into it? And to be honest, I just thought, no, because I'm just so excited that I have like clients coming to me and I'm just so excited to meet new people. <laughs> and he goes, well, at a certain point, you need to really... Um, adequate some of that time into that. and But starting out as still an emerging designer, um, I keep saying that I feel lucky to be able to have 
this type of impact on other women. And I want people to know me and my story and the brand, and I want to be a part of their story. Thank you. Well, I only have one more question, which is, do you have any questions for me about entrepreneurial finance? What has been the most exciting parts of your journey so far? So I've been at it for quite some time. I started my first company when I was 25. I just turned 34. So I would say the most exciting part has been building teams. And for me, it's not the press stories or the photo shoots. It was really building, it has been building teams that work on my ideas. I think if you're an entrepreneur and you have an idea and people are willing to give you some of their finite time on this planet in service of your idea, there is no greater honor, in my opinion. Um, So I take my team very seriously and and mentoring anyone that's ever worked with me um, to the extent that I can. And I'm very proud of where they all are. Uh, The ones who are not still working with me directly, I I keep trying to hire one of my former employees and she's always, oh, I'm still very happy. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll be back in six months. And um, the other thing too, is I've always worked with emerging designers like you. And so all the designers over the years who have said yes to working with me, whether it's been being sold on my e-com site or allowing me to work with them, you know, in a financial capacity or even coming on this podcast, um, I am so grateful to the people that have put their trust in me, whether they're partners or members of my team. Well, you're incredible. I mean, being able to mentor mentor all these people that are coming to you asking about advice and that's incredible on itself and you're already so busy as it is so being able (laughs) to do that thank you you're such an all-around person Catherine (laughs) so I'm curious though in your fine like entrepreneurship as you know being like knowing so much about finance and just business what have you done on the days where something crazy happens and it feels like the world's falling apart I mean, how do you get through it? Do you make sure that it's solved the day of, right then and there? Or are you? would you be able to go to bed at night knowing that it's still not resolved yet? No. And I've had plenty of sleepless nights. However, I am very solutions-oriented. And I think uh, the best entrepreneurs are. It's just like triage. And also, I, I really pride myself on being able to take complicated things and just distill them down to the heart of whatever it is, whether that's a financial concept or a problem. Um, so no, I can't sleep if I haven't solved something. But most most of the challenges you'll face as an entrepreneur cannot be solved in a day. So, you know, I, it's just trying to stay calm. And my ability to handle chaos has definitely, it's always been high, but it's only gotten higher. <laughs> And I also highly recommend putting together what I call a personal board of advisors, uh, board of directors, if you will. And, you know, I I don't have uh, investors or I'm not a publicly traded company, but I definitely have a personal board. And so whenever I have challenges, I go to them and um, they remind me, oh, hey, I remember you had a challenge like this six months ago. And I'll be like, yes, right. I did. And here's how we handled it then. And I remind myself and I think also just getting perspective. Entrepreneurship is very lonely. People don't necessarily talk about that. You, If you don't have a co-founder, and I've never had any co-founders, you are it's your job to solve these things by yourself. You can't show fear to your team. You can't let them know 
the sky is falling. Like, nope, they need to be inspired. They need to maintain their sense of confidence in you as the leader. And it's your job to go solve that. And I think, you know, going and running things by my trusted advisors is always a huge part of my problem solving process. This is incredible. Thank you. Okay. My last question for you. Yeah. What advice do you have for listeners who might be interested in small business and entrepreneurship? My advice that I would have to people listening who are interested in entrepreneurship and fashion and having your own company, and I would say is always to believe in yourself. And it's important to surround yourself with people who believe in you and having that support system whether it's friends or family, because when you start surrounding yourself with people like that, it makes it a little bit easier and feeling like that there's someone behind you that not necessarily will catch you, but will be there to listen to you about what you're going through, at least just have someone to talk to. So always, always believe in yourself because if you don't believe in yourself, how are you going to convince other people to believe in you? But when you start seeing other people believe in you after that, is what makes everything feel like it's really worth it. Like it's really working. And I think it's about having a clear vision on what you want. Not necessarily in five years, I know exactly what I want. In 10 years, I know exactly what I want. Maybe it's just about things that you've dreamt of that are slowly becoming to fruition or you are able to sit down for at least a day or two and work on a story and just write out what your movie would be in a movie, in a picture-perfect movie, and write how that would go. And being able to write that story, I think that's how you, that's how I've manifested so much of my dreams and my passions and turned some into reality. Um, but you know, it's always an ongoing journey and nothing's easy in life. And if it were easy, every single person would be doing it. But it's a challenge. Um, but it's a challenge that is so worth it. Um, especially when you have your name to it. It's it's so worth it. You have to do it right as well. Mm-hmm. And then people will continue to believe in you, your clients, your team, and your friends. And don't ever be scared of mistakes. Sometimes mistakes are the best things that you learn from. It could be the hardest things that you learn from, but the most effective too. I always say it's only a mistake if you don't learn from it. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, thank Andrew Kwan. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me on this episode of The C-Suite with Catherine, your friendly source for small business finance and career guidance through stories. I've linked all the resources that we talked about in this episode in the show notes below. And I can't wait for our next episode together. Thank you so much for being here. Take care.